be seated. Today we are picking back up where we last left off in the book of Mark, and we're going to close out chapter 6. Let's not waste any time. Let's get right into the text. Read along in your Bibles with me, if you will. This is Mark 6, 45 through 56. Immediately he made his way, made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost, and they cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased, and they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And when they had crossed over, they came to the land of Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces, and they implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. We've been seeing a lot of pictures in Mark all throughout this, this chapter 6, and, and Mark's been presenting them and then contrasting them. He presents something and then he contrasts it. And so the first thing we saw was that there was marvelous unbelief. Remember, Jesus came to his own people, his own people. They said, well, we know all about Jesus. There's nothing, there's nothing remarkable about him. You know, that's Joseph's son. That's Mary's son. There's nothing remarkable about him. It was tremendous unbelief, and so Jesus could do no mighty work. Then the next picture, we have him tremendously doing a mighty work in feeding the 5,000. The 5,000 who come to him are excited about him. He looks out and he has compassion on them for their sheep without a shepherd. Then we see Jesus keeping himself from Herod. Herod wants to see him, but Herod's also afraid of him. He thinks that he's John the Baptist's ghost come back to haunt him. And then in today's picture, we have the disciples actually afraid of Jesus, thinking he's a ghost. And Jesus says, no, it's me, it is I. He reveals himself. And then finally, Jesus refuses to be crowned king by force from the people. And so he dismisses them. He sends them away. But then out on the water, he's wielding his scepter. He's completely master of the elements. He's controlling everything. And he is exalted as the king in the midst of a tiny little kingdom. And what a poor little kingdom by all outward appearances. It is at this moment, it's, it's 12 frightened men on a boat at its sea. In this scene, the entire kingdom of God sits on a razor's edge. You see, if we had stood on that shore, if we had seen that little boat being tossed, we would have thought that all of God's plans, this was it. This was God's kingdom in the world at the time, and now it's gone. We might imagine that the next wave would have engulfed the boat, just as we sometimes think that we're just one wave away from God's whole pro- program of redemption being, being lost to sea. We have such little and weak faith. So it's good for us today to look at Christ's kingdom at this specific moment and then to consider how far it's spread from here. And then it's good for us to stand back and witness our king in the midst of peril, in the moment of great peril, 
in order to see how he's going to react in our moments of great peril. By God's grace, we're going to do just that. The story of Jesus walking on water, the disciples in the boat, it's mentioned also in Matthew, it's mentioned in Mark, and it's mentioned in John, but it's not mentioned in Luke. And each one of those Gospels gives us just a little more pieces of the puzzle, right? We can piece them together. And so in order for us to get a bird's eye view, I'm going to be mentioning Matthew, I'll be mentioning John as we piece back and forth about this scene. I see five key points of interest for us today for the note takers. The first point is this. The king's retreat. The second point is the kingdom's peril. The third is the king's glory. The fourth is the kingdom's fear. And the fifth is the king's salvation. First, let's notice the king's retreat. This is not a cowardly retreat, right? Jesus has just fed the 5,000. And then abruptly, it says, immediately, he dismisses the disciples, tells them to get in the boat, go on ahead to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. Now, Mark keeps that very short and sweet. And we go, why, is it, why immediately? What's going on? Why, why is he just going, okay, quick, quick, get in the boat, go, go, go. You know, what's going on? Well, if we go to John's gospel, John 6, 14 through 15, it gives us more of the picture. It says, after the people saw the sign Jesus had performed, the feeding of the 5,000, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Now, Jesus, knowing that they intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. And so you see, the people are thinking, if he can do this, if he can feed 5,000 plus people, then surely he can overthrow the Romans if we just get enough, you know, we got 5,000 men here, let's go, let's start it, let's start a riot, let's start a coup right now, an uprising. And they've also probably noticed the similarities. You remember I talked about the similarities between Jesus and Moses, about the manna and the, the division of the groups. And, and they're probably going, this sounds so familiar with what I learned from Moses. And back in Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses says, there will be one like me, a prophet like me, who will rise up. And so they're just putting two and two together. We know from other portions in, in the Gospels that many of the disciples also thought this way. Right? Peter, when he takes the sword and he lops off Malchus's ear, he's thinking, it's go time. This is it. Let's start the uprising. And and many of the other disciples are constantly asking, is this the kingdom? Is this when you're bringing in the kingdom? Is this how it's happening? And so they wanted Jesus to usher the kingdom in then and there. They wanted a political, a physical kingdom. They wanted monetary things, physical monetary things. They wanted it on earth. And if Jesus wasn't willing to do it himself, they would do it for him. They were going to compel him by force. And of course, there's nothing new under the sun. We think about our day and age. How many people use Jesus all the time for their own machinations of their own motivations? How many attempt to crown Jesus as king over everything except their own lives? How many of them say, give us bread, Jesus, but you can keep that salvation. I'm good. Give us give us the power. Give us the glory. Keep your humility. Keep the meekness. You see, Jesus is not a tool for us. He's not a vending machine. He's not a magic eight ball. God will not be mocked. He will be crowned king, but not the way we often want him to be or the way that the people expect him to be. So Jesus, of course, knows all this. And before things can get out of hand, he sends the disciples away. He doesn't want them caught up in the the fur of this, the, the fever. He doesn't want them exasperating the situation. And so he says, you guys go. I'm going to go up on a mountain. I'll, be, I'll meet up with you guys later. 
Now, what does Jesus do up in the mountains? I read this and I confess I would have liked to have gone with him. (laughs) I would like to be there. I would very much like to be with Jesus on this mountain. Can you think of how wonderful it would have been to be with Jesus? And it's one of these rare, beautiful, brief moments in the life of Jesus where he's actually able to break away from the pressure of the crowd and, and be alone with his father in peace. This was his place of rest, of joy, of quietness, of shalom, of perfect peace. Now, unfortunately, as we've seen time and time again in the Gospel of Mark, whenever Jesus is away from the disciples, they quickly fall into trouble. They quickly get into distress. But at this time, we we notice it's not actually due to anything that they've done. It's not actually a failing of the disciples, but but rather they're on the sea because that's where Jesus has put them. Where's Jesus? He's in the place of calm, and such is still his place now. He's at the right hand of the Father, and us, the church, he's on the mountain, and we're often in trouble at sea. And so this is very applicable for us today, which leads to our second point. The kingdom is in peril. Verse 47, later that night, the boat was in the middle of the lake, and he was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. And there's a few important things for us to stand back and look at here. The first is that although the storm came upon the disciples, they were exactly where Christ wanted them to be. We need to see this. We need to hear this clearly. You need to take this in. You can do all the right things. You can be following God's will for your life and still find yourself in a storm or a trial of great significance. And not only that, but God will have placed you there. God will have told you to go there. He will have put you in that, right in the path of that storm in order that your faith might grow. We know that during the feeding of the 5,000, it was getting late, right? Where he sends them away. It's, it's almost dinner time, Jesus, right? It's, it's getting late. The, the sun's about to go down. And now we're told that this is in the middle of the night, in fact, it says in Matthew, I believe, the fourth watch. That's, that's anywhere from 3 to 6 a.m. So they've struggled potentially for eight to nine hours in the storm. I mean, can you imagine rowing against the wind for eight to nine hours during the pitch black darkness of the night? It would be awful. Now, the second thing to notice is that the boat was tormented by the wind. It wasn't so much the water that was the issue this time, but the wind that kept pushing them to the middle of the lake. Now, if you are in this situation, if I'm in this situation, what would we do? Okay, the natural thing to do would be to go again, go with the wind. I mean, you don't have to be an expert sailor to know you don't push against the wind. It's, that makes no sense, right? You don't pull on Superman's cape. You, do, you, don't, you don't go against the wind, you go with the wind. So why didn't they turn the boat? Because Jesus had told them to go to the other side. (laughs) It was their loyalty to Jesus. It was their obedience to his command that kept them in their peril. And so these blundering, these frail, these faulty, these sometimes goofy men, men that are so much like us that we're bound to love them the more we read of them, right? At any rate, they were true enough to follow Christ even when all their seafaring knowledge, even when all the wisdom of this world said, turn around, turn around. Won't Jesus just understand? Won't he know? Just turn around. You see, obedience to God, even when it's counterintuitive to the wisdom of the world, is a beautiful 
beautiful thing to witness. It's a marvelous thing to see men and women live their lives in perfect obedience to God's command. Now, this was not a perfect kingdom of perfect souls in that boat. We know that. But it was a kingdom of obedient souls. And they had put their faith and their trust in Jesus. And if Jesus said, go to the other side, that's where we're going to end up. Now, if you've been here the last couple months, you might be thinking, this story sounds familiar. (laughs) Didn't we already do this? Weren't we already in a boat? Weren't we already in a storm? Yes. Yes, we've been here before. But last time, what was the key difference? You remember that? What's the key difference? Jesus was with them. Jesus was with them and he was asleep. But where's Jesus this time? The kingdom is in peril. The kingdom's in peril. Jesus, where are you? Where is the king? And we're told he's coming. Verse 47, and Jesus was alone on land. He saw the disciples straining at the oars because the wind was against them. Now, shortly before dawn, he went out to them walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them. But when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. Here comes the king. Here comes the king and he's about to show his glory. You see, Christ is coming to rescue his people. And I want you to notice that he never lost sight of them. He never lost sight of them. Jesus will never rest perfectly, even in the highest heaven, while his bride, while we are storm-tossed at sea. His eye is on his sheep. His heart is with the lowly. His ear is attentive to his people's cries, and his hand is always quick to action. Now notice this. Jesus went to them over the very waters that threatened to engulf them. He was master of it all. And though the very wind was contrary to them, he walked through as one would open a door. This is a revelation that should give us tremendous peace. Wonderful peace. The sea swell is breaking upon uh, some craft, some vessel, some soul in this room, some child of God. But Jesus has never lost sight of you. And he's coming. And you may feel like the disciples. You may say, Christ does not seem near. He's not coming. I can't see him. He seems to be away in the day of the tempest. There was a time when he was with me on the boat. And I remember it because I could wake him. I felt like he was there. He was so near to me. His presence was right there. This time is different. He's nowhere near. He's not watching me. But he knows. He knows. And he's coming. It's too dark for you to see him just yet. He's coming. He cannot and will not leave you alone to perish. And I want you to mark this again. Take this to heart. He is coming over the very waves you and I are most afraid of. The very waves of trouble that threaten to buffet and break us into a thousand little pieces are the pavement for his blessed feet. The breaking waves are our Lord's dance floor. And you will say, okay, okay, it's not, it's not just the waves, it's the wind that's been holding me back. I've been pushing against it. But he's coming through that wind as well. He's pushing through it with you, with me. You see, he took on flesh in order to redeem us. He's tasted the salt water. He's felt the ocean spray on his face. And though our vessel is becoming overcome with water, he is coming. You know the words of the hymn. You sung it probably a hundred times if you've been in church. I want you to listen to it again with fresh ears. When through the deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of sorrow shall not overflow. For I will be near thee, thy troubles to bless, and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. 
You see, this trial into which the Lord has sent you, has called you, whatever you're going through today, it will one day be a great blessing to you. It will be a sanctifying fire. It will temper your steel. It will sharpen your blade. And what you once thought was a curse, God will turn into a blessing. He says, all things, all things work together for the good of those who love me. So Jesus looks out upon their little boat and he has the same compassion we saw earlier with the hungry crowd. He looks out upon them like Yahweh in the Old Testament, the God of the Old Testament, the covenant God of our fathers. Jesus now comes to deliver his people once again in need. And this deliverance becomes yet another self-revelation about who he is. All throughout Mark, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? We've been asking this question over and over and over again. Well, here the passage says, Jesus walks where only God can walk. Who is Jesus? As in the forgiveness of sins back in Mark 2.10, remember, he, he can forgive sins. In the power over nature, the last time they were in the storm. That's Mark 4.39. And so Jesus walked on the water. He walks on the water and it further identifies him unmistakably with God himself. This is reinforced when Jesus calls out to them. He says, it is I. And in the Greek, that's ego eimi. That's the, the identical God's self-disclosure of himself to, to Moses in the Old Testament from the burning bush. Jesus not only walks where only God can walk, but he takes God's name upon himself as well. And then the text says this awkward thing about Jesus wanting to pass by them. You know, and you can almost read it like, is he pulling a joke on them? And, you know, it's like, oh, you guys in trouble? You know? It says he wants to pass by them. And it's not immediately clear until we go back to the Old Testament. We have to go back to the Old Testament because it reveals to us what's going on here. Back at Mount Sinai, you'll remember Moses is there. He's talking with God and he says, I want to see your glory. And God says, I will allow my glory to pass by you. I will allow all my goodness and all my mercy and all my greatness, all my glory will pass by you. I will declare my name, my covenant name to you, Moses. Again, at Mount Horeb, the Lord revealed his presence to Elijah and says this. It says he passed by him. First Kings 1911. If we go back to the book of Job, this is Job 9. There's this whole beautiful recounting of the awesome separation that exists between God and man. And it says this in Job 9, 8. It says, who alone stretched out the heavens and trampled the waves of the sea? 9, 11. Behold, he passes by me and I see him not. He moves on, but I do not perceive him. The commentator, James Edward, he writes this. He says, when Jesus passes by the disciples on the lake, he does something different from the revelation of God in the Old Testament. He intends to make the mysterious and the enigmatic God of Job visible and palpable as it had not been and could not have been to the former generations. The God of Israel, majestic and awesome, but unknowable face to face, is now passing by believers in the Jesus of Nazareth. And so he's walking on the water. He's walking on the water. And therefore, the divine answer to the earlier questions, you remember the first storm, who is this that even the winds and the waves obey him? If you want to know who Jesus is, enter the drama. 
Come into the text. Enter the drama. You must get into the boat and look at Jesus and behold Him as He truly is. For the one who calmed the storm is the great I Am of God. Listen to Psalm 77, 16. When the waters saw you, O God, when the waters saw you, they were afraid. Indeed, the deep trembled. Psalm 77, 19. Your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen. And so the king has come. And the word becomes flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. And there's a glorious little moment at the end of this passage in Mark 6. The people have landed. The disciples are landing in Gennesaret. The people are longing to see Jesus, just a glimpse of Jesus. If we can but just touch the hem of his garment, if Jesus would just pass us by. If I could but see him pass by in his glory. Beloved, how many times has Jesus passed by us in our lives? How many times have we seen his glory and yet failed to comprehend it just like the disciples failed to comprehend it this time and timeless times? Lord, forgive us for our failure to do this. I pray that today would be the day that he passes us by and we would fall to our knees in worship. Well, how about the little kingdom? How does it respond to the great king and his glory? It responds sadly with fear, tremendous fear. Verse 49 through 51, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and they cried out for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, take heart. It is I do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. You see, the darkest part of that night for these men, the darkest dark of the dark night was not the darkness of the clouds, not the terror of the wind, not the thundering waves. None of that was what terrified them. Just as their previous experience. You'll remember they were, they were scared of the water, but they were more terrified when Jesus said, hush up. And he calmed the storm. That's what they were terrified of. And this time, so again, the most terrible thing of all that night was the phantom wave dancer. You see, they could fight the wind. They could fight the waves, but they could not fight a ghost. And the same is true for us. You see, the most terrible uh, troubles that often come in my life, that I'm sure come in your way, are not the things that you know, we've dealt with time and time again. We can handle those things. There are things that are so common to men and women, all these things we can handle. You see, it's the once or twice, sometimes more, it's these horrors that come to us, these unthinkable darknesses, these evil, these These things we have no explanation for in our lives that truly strike us to our very core. And so that night, it was the inexplicable trouble that came to these men in the middle of their terror. Terror upon terror. And as they strained their eyes to make out the phantasm, suddenly it spoke. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. You see, exposition fails us here, doesn't it? It's so simple. It's so beautiful. It's so majestic. I can't put into words the glory of this moment. And instead, Mark invites us to bathe in it. He wants us to come and hear these words from Christ and let them wash over us. It is I, be not afraid. 
And for the trembling soul living in obedience today, you're here today and you're pushing hard against the wind. You've been following the Lord's instructions and yet you found yourselves in yet another storm. This is a melody to your ears. You see, the unexplained, the phantom in the midst of a storm, that's our master. That's Jesus Christ. And the hours, the days, the weeks, so many of us would look back on these times and we would say, I wish it had never happened. Those are the exact moments when our master was in the storm with us. And at the time, we may not have recognized him clearly. We may have, have seen his presence and we were terrified of it. We were frightened at that moment. It was too much for us to bear. But he was in the waves and he was gliding in the wind. And if you close your eyes, if you listen, you can hear the infinite music of his voice. He's singing in the heart of the storm. Take heart. It is I. Do not be afraid. You see, the Lord can and will often use one day of great shadow, one week of great darkness, to do you more spiritual good than a thousand days of sunshine and light. And it's in the hour of our greatest heartache, our greatest need, that often we actually find him most near, and we see him most clearly. And so if you are here today with a sad heart, be still. If it be possible for you today, wait and rest in the Lord. Be patient. For you will one day look back on whatever unutterable agony you are dealing with, and you will say, Lord, for that day, above all other days, I will praise the great name of Jesus. For out of that bitterness will come sweetness, and out of that mourning will come dancing. And out of that mysterious phantom will come the sweet, precious voice of our Lord. And it will warm your heart. It will make every fiber of your being pulsate with new joy and new enthusiasm that you will bless the name of the Lord. And when you realize this, you'll say, Lord, would you call me out upon the waters? I want to be with you. I want to be with you because it's safer out on the water in the midst of the storm with Jesus than it ever is in the boat. Let's make a quick point here. I want to stop really quick. We're going to make a quick point about verse 52. When Ashley, my wife, and I were talking about this, she said, what's up with that verse 52? And I said, well, I'll mention it. I'll talk about it. Verse 52 says this. They were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. Now we're going, what on, what on earth? Their hearts are hardened. They just saw Jesus walk on the water, but they're astounded, not because of that, but because they don't understand what, about the loaves. You see, John's gospel gives us a, a picture, a better picture of what's happening here. The basic idea is this. The point of the feeding of the 5,000 was not mainly that Jesus gives us bread to satisfy our needs. He will do that. The point of the feeding of the 5,000 was that he is the bread that will satisfy our every need. He is the manna sent from God from heaven. And so the miracle of Jesus walking on the water serves to bolster the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and vice versa. And the gospel writers are telling us this very short little incident about Jesus walking in the water, as magnificent as it is, is meant to just clarify what happened with the loaves and the fish. And what happened with the loaves and the fish should have been no surprise to us when he walked on the water. You see, the disciples are in the dark. They're in the storm. They're without Jesus. And right after this, is, you know, right before this was the miracle of the bread. And the whole point of that was 
If you feed on me, you'll have eternal life. So Jesus gives them not only bread to eat, but a miracle of his own presence. And when they thought about this, there was was no way he could be out here to help. We're in the middle of the lake. This could not be Jesus. And yet here he is. His presence is with us. The pastor, John Piper, he says, he puts it this way. He says, Jesus is saying to them and to us, here's another miracle for you. I've shown you that in the dark, in the storm, I will let nothing separate me from you. I will walk on water to be with you. And when you take me into your boat with joy, we arrive at our destination. As R.C. Sproul, the late great preacher R.C. Sproul said about this passage, he says, when we know the presence of the Lord, we will stop straining at the oars. Wonderful. Now to this point, if you know your Bible well, as we get ready to close, you're going to say, uh, this is missing something. Mark's account is missing something. Uh, Didn't Peter walk on the water? And if you're thinking that, you're correct. He did walk on the water. Uh, Since this is Mark writing an account of Peter's gospel, Peter was probably like, let's not mention that part. Let's, let's, uh, we'll leave that part out. And then Matthew says, don't worry, Peter. I'll, I'll take care of it. I'll include it in my gospel. No worries, right? Matthew 14, 28 through 31. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, Jesus said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came towards Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said, why did you doubt? Which leads to our final point. And the final point is the king's salvation. So much has been made out of poor Peter walking on the water with Jesus. Entire books have been written. Songs have been sung. I just want to mention a very few quick little points that are good for us as we close. Many of them are cliche, that's okay. Cliches are often true. First of all, was it presumption that caused Peter to go forth? Perhaps, I don't think so, right? Many commentators are mean to Peter. They're very cruel to him. How dare Peter do this, right? But Peter says, let me come out, and Christ doesn't scold him. He says, okay, come. And Jesus would never invite him to do something sinful. Or something that was presumptuous. So I think Peter's request, in my mind, is an outburst of love. It's like when a child says, Daddy, can I jump to you? Jump, he leaps into the arms of a father. Think how quickly at the end of John, they come up on the boat and Jesus is on the shore. And Peter leaps off the boat and runs to Jesus. He loves him. Peter loves Jesus. And so if we're to be fools for Christ, let us be fools in love with him. Secondly, Peter gives up the safety of the boat to go to Jesus. Our focus is often too much on the wind, too much on the storm. And we would do well to leap into the waters if Christ bids us to come to him in faith. And third, again, it's cliche, but it's so true. Peter took his eyes off Jesus. He took his eyes off Jesus. And in that moment, that's when he sank. But notice, not that, notice not that, but notice his prayer. What does Peter say? It's so splendid. It's so splendid. Lord, save me. And what is Jesus' response? It says this, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. Now this is the revelation for us today. This is how God acts towards his people when we fall upon hard times, when we fall into troubles, into sorrows, and we even face death. Whatever difficulty we found ourselves in, and more often than not we find ourselves in difficulty due to our disobedience, rather than our obedience, 
But whatever tempest comes, Christ is always there to lend us aid. Peter got into trouble, but Christ was there immediately. And that word right there, immediately, is one of those blessed words that should be emboldened. It should be printed in gold ink. It should be enlarged into a poster. It should be up on a billboard. And every faltering soul, every, every one of us who ever doubts or has any sort of fear should look up on it and gaze upon it and tremendously respond in joy. Immediately. Sinner, I pray that if, if you hear that today, immediately. By God's grace, you would cry out with Peter, Lord, save me. And you can be assured immediately he will. His nail-pierced hands will clasp hold of yours, and he pulls you into his arms forever. This is the timeless truth. This is the timeless truth of all of Mark's gospel, is that salvation comes through faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. It's not that we take hold of Christ, but that he takes hold of us. And the faith that ultimately saves the drowning, sin-sinking soul is the one with a personal confidence in Christ the King, the water walker. And for those who cry out to Jesus in faith, then know this. From now into eternity, he'll on the mountain praying for you. He will walk on the water to come towards you. Jesus is ultimately on the boat with you, and all shall be calm. I'm going to close with the words from a hymn. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew. This is by uh, Gene Ingelow. says this, Thou didst reach forth thy hand and mine enfold. I walked and sank not on the storm-vexed sea. T'was not so much that I on thee took hold as thou, dear Lord, on me. Let's pray. Lord, we confess that there are so many times we are caught in storms of life and trials and troubles and sorrows and tremendous heartaches, Lord. And how quickly we are to focus on the wind, to focus on the waves. Lord, we do not recognize you in those moments. We don't think you're there. But this story, Lord, I praise you for this story. Because it reminds us that even in life's biggest moments, in the biggest storms of our life, Lord, you are there. You are with us. And you are there immediately when we call out to you. Lord, I ask if there is somebody here today who is struggling with that, who is, whose heart is aching, is breaking, Lord, would you comfort them? Lord, would you reach out your hand and pull them up from their sinking, from their death? Would you bring them back to life? Jesus, we thank you. Would you, act, would you pass by us today? <laughs> would you pass by us today, Lord, and give us eyes to see your glory? We pray all this in the name of Christ, the great I am, the Lord Jehovah, Jesus. Amen. Let's stand as we sing our final hymn together, Gospel Doxology.